This week on the Backtable Podcast. And so the pas de deux in PAE is quite simply that a urologist and an interventional radiologist evaluate the patient, find the best treatment, treat him, and follow up so that the patient has a smooth course. And we look at a beautiful dance on stage between two partners. So PAE requires the ballet parallel to a pas de deux in the classic ballet form. This is my plea to every urologist and interventionalist out there. Don't just go solo and just deny the PAE as a urologist and as an interventionalist. Don't deny the important role of the urologist with their expertise and the evaluation, the follow-up and the technical stuff that we do. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things urology, as well as interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. Before we dive into our topic today, just want to say a quick word from our sponsor, RadPad. RadPad radiation protection products developed by physicians for physicians and clinically proven to protect during CINE and digital subtraction angiography. Don't bet your health on anything less. Trust RadPad protection for all your interventions. See radpad.com for more information and contact info at radpad.com to learn more about radiation safety CME credits for you and your team. This is Aditya Bagrodi as your host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce my guest, Dr. Klaus Rohrburn, chairman at UT Southwestern Department of Urology, and Dr. Sandeep Bagla, an interventional radiologist in Virginia and president of Prostate Centers USA. Sunny and Klaus, thanks for joining me on this Saturday morning. How's your day going? Good so far. Thank you for asking. Yeah, thank you as well. Thanks for having us. So really excited to have Klaus Rohrburn, who's really been a thought leader in medical and surgical management of benign prostate hyperplasia and associated lower urinary tract symptoms over the last several decades, along with Sunny Bagla, who on the interventional radiology side has contributed a massive amount of information with respect to prostate artery embolization. And I just preface this episode by saying that oftentimes I feel at both ends, there is a little bit of a push and pull, turf war, give and take. And I'm really excited to, you know, hear different perspectives on why this might be the case and why this actually shouldn't be the case. So maybe I'll just start out with Klaus. You know, over the last decade or so, there's been, you know, an absolute explosion of options available for people with BPH. Could you just basically give us a brief summary of the intake when you're considering a patient and what options may be appropriate? Well, I'm happy to do that. So just to just reach back a little bit, I would say that the decade of the 1990s was the decade in which drug therapy for LUTs and BPH became a household thing and everybody started using alpha blocker and eventually five ARIs. Then between 1995 and 2010, I would say drug treatment was refined, incorporating classes such as anticholinergics, uh, PD-5 inhibitors, combinations of alpha blockers and 5-ARI, et cetera. And so we have reached now a point where the drug treatment, I would almost say is maxed out. There are some open questions about drug treatment for sure, like long-term side effects of drug treatment. Um, and is, is it good to actually wait longer on drug treatment? Are there some patients? Who would be better off getting surgical treatment, but that's kind of how that drug treatment worked out over time. 
Now, we had minimal invasive treatments also in the 1990s, but there were major setbacks. And I want to remind the community of listeners and geologists of what these setbacks were and how they came about. There was developed minimally invasive treatments consisting of balloon dilation of the urethra. And that seemed to be a good thing. And people did it until Herplipore showed that it wasn't in the long term more effective than basically putting a cystoscope in there and holding it still for 10 minutes had the same effect as a balloon dilation. So a great uh, setback for minimal invasive treatments. Then came a phase where transrectal and transurethral uh, hyperthermia was done. And that was basically up to a temperature of 43 degrees. Not very hot and not very effective. And it showed in a, amazingly enough, in France, in Paris, the public hospitals joined together, did a randomized trial and showed it was basically no good, no better than uh, having a heating pillow on your perineal. Then came the first mechanical device, the Eurolum stand, made by AMS then. So the Eurolum stand was a mechanical device to keep the urethra open. It proved to be actually somewhat successful for recalcitrant strictures. It was also used in patients with Stetusa sphincter dysenergia. But uh, for BPH, it had a very checkered history. There was a trial done, and in this trial, some data falsification occurred. And when uh, the, the data was sort of revealed, all these things were used widely in practice, it turned out that most of these patients formed calcifications and formed stones, and it was a nightmare. So a lot of bad taste on the part of the FDA, organized urology, the AUA, and clinicians and patients because of that. So in the last 10 years, there is at least three treatments that came about, and they couldn't really be any more different. There is one that is mechanical. It's called the Eurolift or prosthetic urethral lift. And uh, it was developed as a mechanical device to um, open up the urethra, the prosthetic urethra, by way of essentially staples that staple the lateral lobes of the prostate to the side. So this has seen two or three randomized controlled trials and a lot of long-term studies, prospective studies. And it's currently a sort of a mainstay of treatment for select patients in a size range between 30 and 80 grams based on AUA guidelines. So purely mechanical and nothing involving ablation of tissue or heat or anything. The second one is kind of the opposite. It's also minimally invasive, but it is not mechanical at all. It uses heat. But in this case, the heat doesn't come from microwave. It comes from radio frequency. But honestly, you could also use a, uh, you know, an oven. Because what all that's done is that, that fluid is heated up to convert, phase convert from liquid to steam. And just by way of reviewing what that does is uh, it stores energy. Remember, a kilocalorie is the energy used to, to convert one liter of fluid by one degree of centigrade. So from 21 room temperature to 22. So in this case, steam occurs at 100 degrees centigrade. So there's a lot of energy in this fluid that becomes steam. So the steam is injected into the prostate and the moment it hits the 37 degree prostate temperature, the steam converts back to water and the energy is released. Again, a lot of energy per puff. So the rhizome treatment marketed now by Boston Scientific, uh, originally developed by Nextera, is also a mainstay and it's a heat-based treatment. And then another treatment that has been basically in the last 10 years seen an explosion of articles and use outside of urology, but in interventional radiology is what our other guest today is uh, done a lot of research on treated our patients will likely talk about the technical aspect of it. It's the arterial embolization of the prostate. So the idea being embolizing a prostate will somehow induce obviously ischemia leading to atrophy, leading to shrinkage. 
And we know that shrinkage works. Finasteride shrinks the prostate by 25 to 30%. It works. Even, you know, more advanced hormone ablation that leads to 30 or 40% reduction. We know that from prostate cancer over time leads to an improvement in symptoms. So this is, again, a completely different approach. And uh, it basically is in the domain of interventional radiology and induces uh, not ablation of tissue, but it uses over time a shrinkage of tissue with plus minus commensurate PSA. Where I see, and we get to this later, some of the data deficiency is that depending on who does it and how it's done, there's not always a clear correlation between symptom improvement, size reduction, and PSA reduction, which for purists would be nice. But I, I bet you that uh, Sandeep will explain to us that that has a lot also to do who does it, how it's done, because not every interventional radiologist does it the same way. And I think that's the issue that some urologists have with it, which we'll get to. So three different minimally invasive treatments couldn't be more different. Mechanical, heat-based, interventional radiology. And on the horizon, there's at least four or five more mechanical-based treatments and some other treatments that use either patlitaxel to cut a, basically a groove in the prostate and use like this drug to prevent the groove from healing back together. It's a little bit of a space wars, but there are at least four or five on the horizon that people are working on developing all kinds of different shapes of springs and clips and butterfly device, shaped devices, et cetera. So more to come in the next 10 years, no doubt. Well, I appreciate that. You know, I think it at least gives the listenership a sense of just how many options come through. Some of the maybe dark history of TUMT and Eurolifts. I certainly recall as a resident digging out some excuse me, your loom stents with you that were all calcified. And that was a long day at the office. Sonny, maybe from your end, how did you get interested in prostate artery embolization and build a practice along those lines? Yeah, absolutely. And Klaus, I really appreciate that historical lesson because for folks like myself, obviously, who, you know, even though I've been in this space for more than 10 years, you're always, if you will, continuing to try and learn more and more about the history of, of the disease. And not just the natural progression of the disease, but the progression of treatment. And I think my personal interest really started back now more than 10 years ago when the first experience came out of Portugal and I became close with the team in Portugal who initially was leading their first pilot study. And Diddy, about 10 years ago, we ran the first U.S. clinical trial here, just a single arm prospective study. And, you know, at first the urology partners of mine who were other investigators on the study used to say to me, either you're onto something that's either like black magic or you're onto something that's really good. And maybe it'll be a complete failure. And it was good to have doubters early on. And even today, we still have doubters in terms of the treatment, but it's led to repeated study after study and now more than five randomized control studies with PAE. And having been so involved in the space, I've learned just what Klaus said is truly important is that with varying techniques, with varying skill sets, et cetera, it is going to impact outcomes. But it has certainly been a, a great space to be part of because alongside the growth of knowledge about PAE and, and clinical data that's come to publication, it's grown alongside really interest from urologists and device companies in furthering the use of, say, Eurolift, Resume, et cetera, and even more recently, aqua ablation, just so that we can obviously offer patients really treatment options that they've been looking for, which I think have been lacking just because of their 
lack of desire to undergo, as you both know, treatments which, you know, come with side effects that they weren't readily willing to accept. So, Klaus, let me let me ask you maybe first, patients interested in PAE, how are these patients kind of coming across? Are they generally, have they done their research and they're coming to you to say, hey, I'm interested in PAE or Sunny, I'll, I'll pose the same question to you. Are you getting direct referrals to the IR clinic? How are these patients presenting? Well, I would say that the patients present in many different ways, as you all know from other disease areas. Some of them come in and they just have symptoms and they ask, what can I do for my symptoms? And they are naive, treatment naive. That's not as common perhaps nowadays. Many patients come and have been pre-treated with alpha blockers or anticholinergics or beta-3 adrenergics or even Cialis 5 milligram daily is quite common these days. And they're kind of uh, fatigued with the medication or they read some warning online about uh, the drug causing dementia or this or that or the other. And then they'll want to do something else and they're open-minded. And some patients latch on to some bit of information that tells them that Eurolift is the greatest or Resume is the miracle or, or the PAE is the way to go or the aquablation that was mentioned. The aquablation, of course, is a surgery in the OR under anesthesia. So for me, that's not in the same ballpark as minimally invasive treatment necessarily. But so different patients come in with different expectations. And uh, unfortunately, many of the patients that come in with specific expectations uh, are disappointed because a full evaluation reveals they're not a good candidate for one or the other. And I don't know if we want to delve into that. I mean, the AUA guidelines 20, 2021 update gives some guidance on the size of the prostate, the shape of the prostate, the presence or absence of intravesicle protrusion and how it does or does not favor certain treatments. And so the patient sometimes has to be disappointed a little bit because, of course, he couldn't possibly know that. And so people come in with different expectations and sometimes they can be met, sometimes they can't be met. And so I listen and I'll assess the patient in you know, a standardized way. And then I lay it out to them what their options are really are based on their presentation and the various findings. Right. So we, we talked a little bit about this um, earlier. You know, of course, there's patient-specific factors, comorbidities, anticoagulation. Then there's symptom-specific factors. I would say prioritization of um, integrated ejaculation and then prostate anatomy. So those are going to be all, all the factors and Sonny, maybe I'll just ask you, when we look at those factors, what are your kind of ideal patients and who might be a contraindicated patient? Absolutely. That's a great question. I was going to comment too on just how it's changed over the years in terms of, you know, the type of patients who come to us in interventional radiology. Obviously, like Klaus mentioned, patients of all shapes and sizes come with their attachment to a certain procedure oftentimes. And that seems to be the self-directed patient. In my practice, I would say 10 years ago, in most interventional practices, it would obviously be the patients who specifically wanted PAE. And many of those patients obviously were not candidates for many reasons, which we'll get into. But as time has progressed, and especially within my practice where I practice with urology partners, so I have partners of mine that are urologists, the vast majority of my patients come directly from urology after they've gone through proper screening and assessment and discussion about different treatment options. So many of my patients have actually been personally filtered in the sense that we've eliminated those patients, say, for example, with poor bladder function, et cetera. So I'm fortunate, and obviously because I work collaborative with urology, and I think in those departments or at least hospitals where IR does work that way, it does limit 
the, I would say, breadth of patients you get to better selected patients. But suffice it to say, with those factors you mentioned, you know, one thing I do want to point out is the article that Klaus published in BJU in 2020, I think is probably what I use and our practice even uses as the best reference or algorithm as to what factors should be taken into consideration when choosing a treatment option. And as you mentioned earlier and Klaus mentioned earlier, things like Urolift, for example, which have demonstrated its you know best effects, if you will, in patients with prostates, of course, like over 30, 40, 50 grams, for example, but then not over 80 to 100 grams. Utilizing an algorithm like this has allowed us in our practice, for example, to say, listen, if you have a 50 gram prostate and you come to us and you want a PAE, while you may be disappointed that PAE may not be the shining technology or procedure you want, there are options that fit better based on your size and morphology. And so that's been an evolution, certainly for interventional radiologists to get used to and understand. But Diddy, I just wanted to point out because, you know, Klaus may not point out, you know, his own article, but it is, it's probably at least in my mind, when I reference and go through the literature like I do all the time, this is probably, I think, our best point reference for comparing the myths for different patient candidates. Right. So I think, you know, everything that I've come across in the PAE realm suggests that a collaborative approach is the way to go. And, you know, recently I've, I've been on some emails from Klaus in conjunction with our colleagues in interventional radiology at UT Southwestern and the team. And, you know, how do you see this going, Klaus, like whether they come in through urology requesting PAE or whether they're coming in from the IR side, you know, what is your intake for that patient? And then how do we arrange follow-up and assessment of symptom improvement, et cetera? Aditya, I, I almost forgot that you are actually on all these emails because you still have a UT Southwestern email address. And so you get all the urology faculty emails probably still because you still have a lab and a connection to UT Southwestern, which is great. Yeah. So I actually came to it and there, I, I don't have any turf issues here, but I came to a realization that there was something amiss here when I experienced the following. And I'm sure that Sandeep will agree with me that that is not ideal. And it's not ideal for urology, for interventional radiology, certainly not for patient care. So a patient approached the interventional radiology folks at our institution about a PAE. So they had a telehealth visit, of course, COVID, telehealth visit, and then the patient had a PAE done. And then he had a telehealth follow-up visit and it was documented that he felt better and the urination was better, but he still had frequency and urgency. So he got some medication and then he had a second telehealth follow-up visit. And then he ended up in our emergency room and he actually was an overflow incontinence with a very large residual urine. So I called our interventional radiologist this is not good. We should not do this for our patient. We should do it like Sandeep does it. The patients need to come to a clinic to have an assessment. And it's a standardized assessment. They get a symptom score, quality of life score. They have a flow rate of residual urine. Their size, prostate size is measured and assessed and the shape and so forth. And all the data are documented in EPIC. And then I'll tell them, okay, the interventional radiologist, Dr. X, and he will contact you and set up your treatment. You're a good candidate. And after that treatment, the patient will come back to me a month later or six weeks later for a follow-up to make sure everything is good. The urine is clear. He's urinating okay. Residual urine is not too high and so forth and so on. Because our interventional radiologists don't have a, a clinic with a flow rate meter and PBR assessment, et cetera. And it is nonsensical to have them just go there and do the treatment and have a telehealth follow-up visit. If next door we have the clinic and the setup 
to do the assessment properly. The patient just has to understand that. And patients understandably don't know that interventional radiologist life takes place in the interventional radiology suite where they do interventions for all kinds of things and that urologists spend time in the office doing these assessments. So that's a fundamental issue and every working unit, and I'm glad to hear that Sandeep has set this all up with the urologist, every unit has to set it up that way that the patient have, uh, you know, a clinic to fall back to and a urologist and the interventional radiologist and the urologist have to work hand in hand. I couldn't agree more. It is a disease process that no matter what interventional radiology can offer as a treatment, there will always be a gap in whether it's knowledge, experience. It doesn't mean that every urologist will know everything more than an interventional radiologist. And this isn't meant to demean the clinical nature of interventional radiology, which has come a long way over the past 15 years, where most interventional radiologists do have clinics where they see interventional oncology patients and spine patients and and all the like, and vascular patients. And so they have clinics and office hours, et cetera, and they should. But the entire disease process, even for somebody like myself, who's done thousands of prostate embolizations and has, has reviewed urodynamics and urocuff testing and PVR, you name it, it doesn't matter what the testing situation, we all know that the complexity of the disease cannot be managed just by one person who just does a treatment. And having that relationship is is so key and important because I can tell you even in our in our four centers, which are, you know, not just in my center, in all of them, we have this collaboration with urology. And some patients can't even get a mist, even if we want them to, because their poor bladder function. And you know what? They just need a term. And and it's funny because the interventional radiologist doesn't want to necessarily always hear that. And even sometimes within a large urology group, the urologist who does the mist doesn't want to hear that his partner should just do a TERP. And it goes without saying that Klaus's message about doing right by the patient in this example is actually unrelated to a potential complication of the procedure itself, but really, unfortunately, poor, I'd say, management in terms of, hey, I got to make sure that this patient is actually emptying their bladder, which sounds so silly to say out loud to urologists, of course. But the reality is that's right. And and to do this well, you can't offer this in a vacuum. So it goes back to, I think, Didi, your point is how should patients flow? And they really should flow through urology in, in any form. I mean, whether they see a urologist because it's the natural progression or they seek out an IR because they want PAE, they still have to then be assessed and followed by urology because at the end of the day, there are things we're not going to know. And it could be, it could be medication adverse side effects. It could be impact on, on bladder calculi and, and it can be impact on, oh wait, this patient never got a cysto and I've really been treating them for BPH, but they have a stricture. I mean, it goes, the list as you guys know, cause this is your space goes on and on and on. And so that has, it, it, it has to be, you know, I, I would emphatically say that. So I think that's great. And I would say the message is loud and clear that in a patient that is being assessed for PAE, it's pretty incumbent that they see a urologist, of course, as well as an interventional radiologist. So Sandeep, on your end, let's just say the decision has been made that PAE is a good option. A, what does that kind of ideal patient look like in terms of prostate size, symptoms, and comorbidities, if you will? Now, I kind of think of it as both ends of the spectrum, you know, the potentially older, sicker patients on anticoagulation would be, you know, one candidate. And then on the opposite end may be, you know, a younger patient who's maximally interested in preservation of ejaculatory function. 
So what does kind of an ideal patient look like to you? Yeah, I, I think there's a few categories like you mentioned. So there's always the, it depends on how you want to approach this, right? So if you want to approach it from the, the angle that most interventional radiologists feel like, okay, we're going to be stepping on the toes of urologists. So where can we help, right? The where can we help are the patients on dual antiplatelet therapy. They can't come off or anticoagulation. It could potentially be done via radial access. The patients who are old and sick, ASA3, et cetera, or, you know, bed bound. And, you know, the patients who you don't want to necessarily take to the operating room. And those are patients who I think from a medical standpoint, maybe, you know, comorbidity complex may be good candidates, but they still have to meet some underlying features. And I would include, you know, a baseline gland size of at least 60 grams and probably 80 in the more less experienced interventional radiologist hands, just to ensure that vascular size is, is large enough and the vascularity of the prostate is large enough to get meaningful gland size reduction. But then when you look at the other end of the spectrum, you're really looking at the younger or any age patient who, like you mentioned, wants to preserve anti-grade ejaculation. But there's really an interesting subset of patients, and it's a pretty large portion of patients. And I think Klaus alluded to this earlier when he, when he talked about really where medication has come in terms of its being maxed out is, do you have this early patient who we call, if you will, an easy to convert patient for a less invasive treatment, right? And this is the market opportunity for resume Uralift PAE as a whole, which is these patients who don't want to take long-term medication, have side effects, they're worsening on their medications, but they still have to have gland enlargement, right? So they, they have to be that patient, I would say, who, you know, they're willing to get a treatment which doesn't necessarily impact them other ways. And sometimes, Diddy had mentioned too, that some of these patients just don't want anything transurethral, you know, and you know this, obviously many of these patients come in and they say, I'll get something, but I really, you know, that cysto was uncomfortable and I don't want this. Now that might be a smaller subset of patients, but I think in our approach, because again, the urologist is sending me all these patients, they're really just listening to the patient. And it sounds so fundamental, but they're really just listening to him and saying, hey, listen, I have an option. You got a gland size that's reasonable. The median lobe doesn't really affect us in the two clinical studies that we've seen published. And in my personal experience, have not seen that be a negative impact. And Klaus mentions that too in his, in his paper as well, but really focusing on that type of patient, avoiding the patients who really have borderline bladder dysfunction, because as you know, the flow rates we get from a PA are not what we'd expect from a TERP, right? So, you know, we tend to shy away from those people who have what we think are going to be poor predictive factors from a flow standpoint of bladder dysfunction. So we tend to avoid those patients. And smaller glands, I would say, or heavily calcified glands, which we know will not be vascular. But that's how we approach, I'd say, those two large cohorts of patients. All right, great. So, and maybe if I may, ideal candidate greater than 80 grams, a kind of extended indication would be 60 grams. And then patient-specific factors, processing morphology factors, take a second consideration and then just confirming bladder function. Is that, but I know it's oversimplified, but is that reasonable? That's good. And then obviously patient desire, which is always probably the most important. And Klaus, if there's a patient that's considering PAE on the urology side, in addition to kind of standard workup, you know, urinalysis, kidney function, non-invasive uroflowmetry, is there anything else that you would do? First of all, I'm a little bit surprised by the very high size range that Sandeep is mentioning. I, I had thought it is effective in smaller uh, glands as well. And 
it's certainly done, you know, in smaller glands, but maybe that is a little bit of a problem that some folks don't know exactly where to use it. And, and then the outcomes may not be as good, but I'm glad to hear that there is a larger size range required. I'd also like, after my, my comments about the indication, like to have a comment about the vascular supply of the intravesical low. I always wonder if that's the same or if that needs to be a different approach and maybe we can have a discussion on that. So one other aspect that I would say is the peak urinary flow rate. So if the peak urinary flow rate is below five ml per second, and so I view those patients as being in general poor candidates for anything minimally invasive because they either are very, very obstructed or they have, you know, a poor bladder function. So more often than not, they get either the Eurocuff test or the urodynamic study to see what their detrusor capacity is before I offer them any of the minimal invasive treatments. That's another aspect of it. And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, contraindications, you know, there's going to be people coming in for PAE request. Maybe some specifics would be urinary retention, chronic prostatitis, chronic UTIs. Are there patients who maybe will have Klaus take a crack at this and then Sonny that you're saying this might not be a good option? So the, you know, I don't like to, for us to deviate into chronic prostatitis. That's such a wastebasket diagnosis that urologists use all the time. And the NIH long time ago said we should call it chronic pelvic pain syndrome. I don't think Sandeep wants to treat those people, nor do I, nor do you, you know, <laughs> exactly. you can't help. they have this pain and, you know, people have actually removed the whole prostate and they still have the pain. So I would like to put them, send them to a to other people, you know, send them to uh, somebody who does uh, acupuncture or body work. It's everything is better than surgery for those people. So that's not so great, but retention. Yeah. So I don't know how Sandeep feels about it. The AUA guidelines are a little bit too iffy in my opinion on this topic. And part of the problem is that the clinical studies all limit residual urine to like 150 or 200, 250, and nobody gets in a study with a higher residual. So here's the thing. Therefore, we don't know. We don't know if these treatments work or don't work if the residual urine is three or four or 500 because there are no data. So I'm a little circumspect offering resume, for example, to a patient with a high residual urine because I know the prostate initially swells up and there will be a long-term in retention. I can't speak to the PAE because I don't have the personal experience, but it may be similar because the shrinkage is not overnight, I assume anyways. So they may also have prolonged retention issues. So that would be an issue. Yeah, no, I like Klaus's points and I'll comment on those. So with respect to catheter dependent patients, we have a limited number of studies and they are small with respect to PAE that patients can become catheter independent afterwards. And I would say that in my experience, I mean, I've treated hundreds of patients in this situation. And again, you're taking someone I think who's got a lot of, I'd say, technical expertise with the procedure. It does work, but it works in very, we subselect patients, right? Patients who've had catheters for a shorter period of time. They may have gone into retention after surgery and anesthesia, right? So again, we're very careful and we're very particular to make sure that, listen, if you pick a good patient for a particular therapy, of course, you're going to have a better outcome. Those patients, you know, that he mentioned with high PVR, I just had this conversation this week with a partner of mine about a patient who came in who's failed the trial avoiding, I think, five times. And my first question was, why have they not taught him to self-cath? But nonetheless, he failed, you know, trial avoiding five separate times. He initially presented with, you know, obstruction, drained a liter of urine, then his PVR each time when he failed was, you know, up to 500 cc's. We all know that his bladder is going to be thin-walled, weakened, right? He's, he's a poor setup for 
a minimally invasive treatment like PAE, because in my opinion, although we can probably reduce his post-void residual down to maybe 250, it's not great that he hangs around 250 either, as we all know. And so part of this is where the art comes in, as you guys know. And I, I think this goes back to why I say you have to work with urology, because it doesn't mean that a patient shouldn't necessarily get something in every situation. It still may be the best possible treatment for a patient who's sick or on anticoagulation or who doesn't yet desire or want to convert to a TERP, for example. But I think having that understanding, like Klaus just mentioned, is important because that is a limitation with respect to data and something that you know uh, interventionists probably don't know is that with respect to PVR, the impact of what the outcome might actually be. With respect to size, it's funny you say that, Klaus, because I did publish a paper on comparing glands and PA of less than 50 grams, 50 to 80, and over 80. We stratified in three different sizes, and they all had similar outcomes. So truthfully, does PAE work very well in patients with 40, 50, and 60-gram prostates? The answer is yes. But I do lean on the fact that there are technical factors with respect to that, and it does involve a more, I would say, diligent approach to your embolization, probably, in my opinion at least, smaller bead size because the vessels are smaller. So you have to get more distal into the vascularity to get an ischemic event. And so there are technical aspects. So I think when I speak about this for, say, the general interventional radiologist or urologist who says, hey, who can I refer? In my, I would say, community, if I was getting involved in this, I would say first start with those over 60 grams or over 80 grams because the vascularity is going to be way more impactful. The procedure is going to be much more impactful for the patient. So that's how I would address those. And the chronic, I agree with you, the chronic prostatitis bucket, I don't want them either. I did have one patient convince me who had a 200-gram prostate who, who was diagnosed out west with chronic male pelvic pain syndrome. And, and truthfully, he got much better. I told him, you know, listen, <laughs> there are, most people would run from you like orthopedic surgeons run from frozen shoulder patients. But nonetheless, you know, we'll try it and it worked. But I agree with you that it's a whole cohort of patients that we uh, probably don't want to be treating either. So maybe if I may. Again, to kind of summarize, a patient in longer term retention needs to be counseled appropriately and they may not be the ideal candidate. Smaller glands um, should really be done by somebody who's got expertise in this. And then kind of chronic prostatitis patients, as we all know, they need to be counseled appropriately that, you know, this is not necessarily going to be a home run. So, you know, larger glands would be ideal. And then smaller glands, retention, chronic UTIs may be suboptimal. Is that, is that fair? I would say so. And unless they're in retention for a short period of time with a large gland, I think those are probably the more ideal if you're going to do retention patients with PAE. So I'll be candid, Sonny. I think oftentimes, and maybe this is shared by other non-intervention radiologists, we kind of think of, you know, like a perk like a nephrostomy tube that should be able to be done by an intervention radiologist. And of course, it, there's a skill set, there's technical expertise, et cetera. And everything I've read about PAE, it seems like it's a highly technical affair. So maybe I'll just start out with, you know, what is your kind of, in addition to standard BPH, lower urinary tract intake imaging, MR angiography, CT angiography, anything additional that you do? Yeah. So, I, I mean, I agree with you. It is very technically challenging for interventional radiologists, although it is something that's very appreciable and learnable by interventional radiologists because of the other types of procedures they're doing from stroke intervention to complex vascular disease. But I, I sort of liken it to, you know, I'm sure you know this, when you go to the OR and you're doing your PCNL, 
and the nephrostomy that's put in by the interventionalist is put in in the wrong calyx or in a position where you can't flex your scope, right? So there's the art of putting in the PCN and then there's the art of putting it in for the urologist who's doing the stone retrieval. And I think that speaks to, I think, how you do PAE. You know, in our world, we don't get preoperative CTA imaging because the vascularity is often missed or limits your interpretation in terms of real-time imaging of which vessels actually supplying the prostate the most. And oftentimes, there's no real need for us to expose that patient to extra contrast, radiation, cost to the healthcare system, et cetera, when you can get it with a 5cc contrast injection in the internal iliac artery. Where we do spend our time is getting the imaging with respect to baseline, even if it's a truss or an MRI to evaluate, you know, listen, does this patient meet criteria for other procedures? But in the workup for PAE in particular, really, in, at least in the way we train and we run meetings, of course, as you know, to train other IRs to do these types of procedures is really limited to urologic workup to figure out what they should, what should be done. Much of our worry would be more like, is the creatinine elevated from intrinsic renal failure? What's your anticoagulation status in INR related to an arterial puncture? So they're more medical management things than they are actually, I would say, imaging. So you're not typically getting any additional imaging. Once you know the size, comorbidities, all that kind of good stuff, adequate renal function, you're happy to get in real-time assessment of the arterial anatomy at the time of the procedure? Absolutely. And if they do need to get some sort of, I would say, cross-sectional imaging at most of the universities, they can do intra-procedural CT angiography where it's comb beam CT angiography. If that helps somebody who's early on in their practice and they need confirmation of the arterial anatomy and they're uncomfortable, then they know and they have the technology in their fixed fluoroscopy units to basically inject contrast through the catheter you know, the fluoroscopy unit will spin at least 180 degrees around the patient and will generate a CAT scan image during the case, which they can review and confirm that that's the dominant artery. And I think that's used very early on for folks who are getting into PAE who have not gone through some sort of formalized training or proctorship. Uh, that's probably the most common situation I see when I go and travel around to visit other sites. Great. So I might just ask you to do the following, Sandeep, and I think getting into the kind of technical aspects of actually performing PAE might be out of the scope of this particular episode, but the decision has been made to perform with PAE. Can you kind of tell us what your process is of patient counseling to expect during the procedure, peri-procedural, early, intermediate, and late, as well as kind of some of the less common but more feared complications? Sure. Absolutely. So I'd say you know, in our initial conversation with the patient, it's obviously, you know, making sure their outcomes related to the procedure. And this obviously depends on their baseline clinical situation are really understood. So if there's someone who expects to get off medications or early on in their disease process versus somebody who's catheter dependent, I think having that conversation is what we really stress. The actual procedure and coming in for it, you know, they're under moderate sedation. So they're getting Versed and fentanyl. They should be in, you know, if you will, a moderate sedation state, so that should not be painful or really feel anything. In experienced hands, the procedure may take anywhere from 30 minutes to 60 minutes. In inexperienced hands or in difficult cases, it can take an hour and a half to two and a half hours, and I've seen this in places where they're just getting started. Then they typically will recover at the interventional holding area for about two hours if they use a closure device, or an hour and a half if they go from a transradial access or the wrist rather than femoral artery, and then they'll go home. 
And typically, you know, our patients will go home with a regimen to prevent what most people are calling like a post-PAE syndrome, which is really, if you will, like my urology partners call it a post-cystoscopy syndrome. But nonetheless, it's frequency, some dysuria, and that's the most common complaint. Occasionally, patients will have some hematuria. Hematospermia may happen in some patients, which is transient. These are, I'd say, the most common things that patients will have, and they usually occur for about three to seven days. We send them home with peridium. Oftentimes, we'll use a medrol dose pack because of the size of their prostate. You can taper a steroid for a few days. We use that routinely because, honestly, it makes those symptoms so tolerable that patients don't mind. They don't leave with a Foley catheter. The only patients we put a Foley catheter in transiently for these patients are patients who've had any episode of acute urinary retention within the past 45 or 60 days, or as Klaus mentioned earlier, those ones who teeter. So the ones who have a peak flow of, say, two, three cc's, those people, as you know, are going to probably end up in obstruction with any inflammatory episode cysto. Anything's going to probably tip them over the edge. But they expect, and we counsel them to have those first five to seven days of urinary discomfort, if you will, afterwards. We don't expect things like fever, nausea, vomiting, we don't expect any systemic side effects to occur, even in large glands. And the largest gland I've done of six to 700 cc's still haven't seen systemic post-embolization syndrome in patients like that. So what we then counsel them is their secondary recovery will be where they see symptom improvement, which usually occurs between week two and week four, where they notice the largest drop, if you will, in their IPSS to about four weeks where they say, okay, this is the biggest delta in terms of over a rapid period of time. They'll still improve from month one to month three, but really where they really notice that bulk of improvement is between week two and week five after the procedure. So that's when we first follow up our patients, assess them. They will get, depending on what their pre-op PVR was, a PVR at that time, or if it was low or negligible, they may not get that PVR to about three or four months. In terms of complications of what we're looking for at that visit, and of course, they get a phone call earlier in two weeks, we're looking for things that can occur like a UTI, right, in patients who've had recent instrumentation. It's not really expected, but it can occur, of course. Common things being common, that's probably the most common, I would say, complication you might see is a urinary tract infection. But other things that we really see, truthfully, are related to access. So you're in the artery. So you might get discomfort where we went into the arterial puncture site. You might get a hematoma bruising. Those are things that you might see 1% of the time, 2% of the time, as far as dreaded or, you know, rare complications, things that are one in a thousand or less, you know, the one case of bladder ischemia, that one centimeter of bladder ischemia that occurred in Pisco study in 2009 still appears as it will in every meta-analysis that occurs. So the rate keeps going from one in 15 now to, you know, 0.3% to now 0.1% as it keeps getting added to every subsequent meta-analysis. I don't really worry about non-target embolization like I do other complications in older men. So I would be concerned if I was performing the procedure and counseling the patient that, listen, we're in your vascular tree. You're an older 80-year-old man. You probably have calcific disease. We worry about things like atheroemboli. So if the procedures are difficult, difficult arteries to navigate, you can get arterial emboli-related complications. And we worry about getting blue toe syndrome or emboli to the legs. And Again, I'm talking about exceedingly rare things, right? One in 5,000, one in 10,000 type situations. But when you ask Eddie, what are those dreaded things? I mean, these are the things that live in our world because we're in the artery every day, not just for PAE, but for everything else. And so, I mean, those are the things we worry about. Can you have, you know, non-target to the penis? Can you have non-target to the rectum? Yes. Can you have transient balanitis from having that non-target? Or can you have transient proctitis 
Absolutely. These invariably should all self-resolve. And they're not things that I would really tell a patient in experienced hands they should be worried about. Just like you can see, as you know, rare complications from a urolift, like I've seen, you know, obturator artery perforation and pseudoaneurysm. Of course, these things can happen, but they should, of course, be very rare and, you know, case reportable type events. I think that's fair. It's the same type of thing, I think, on the urology side, you know, the oddballs, a ureteral injury or, you know, God forbid, an anesthetic complication. And, um, you know, what I'm hearing is that it's going to be kind of general expected things when you manipulate the lower urinary tract. Then you have your lower probability things, which would be not uniformly catastrophic, but obviously inconvenient for the patient, but highly manageable. And I think that's important to discuss because some of the fear factor of not knowing or doing a procedure is, you know, it's very outside of your day-to-day wheelhouse. I mean, one of my partners gave me a Urolift device to hold once. And when I was holding it in my hand, I felt like I was holding like, you know, a gun, right? Because for an interventional radiologist, we hold these two French floppy, you know, catheters that look like, you know, that we don't want to like injure a blood vessel, right? And urologists are used to using robots, right? So when you come from different worlds, sometimes when you speak to patients and you discuss complications and discuss them collaboratively, it's hard to really imagine that many of the things that we can control, like arterial complications with closure devices, et cetera, are things that are really day-to-day for us. Whereas when we did run into this complication of somebody who had a pseudo after a Eurolift, which I know is case reportable and exceedingly rare, I'm sure Klaus knows John Casper, for example, in Raleigh. I picked up the phone and sent this case to John and said, hey, John, how did, you know, from the angio image, hey, John, how did this happen? And he goes, well, you know, if you torque the urethra enough and you put out a needle and you hit the top of the pubic ramus, you're going to injure an artery. And and the reality is, listen, it, these things can happen and, and they do, unfortunately, because as you know, medicine is part art, part science. But they're, they're good discussions to have because I like having them because I think it's always good to accept what we can do better and how we can minimize the complication risk, which is, I think, the theme of a lot of this whole discussion. Yeah, absolutely. Any thoughts on that, Klaus? Well, I'm aware of some vascular misadventures of the Eurolift. And although the, the Eurolift has a limited flow, if it's a small prostate and if you torque the urethra, you can get way outside. And anybody who has done radical prostatectomies after Eurolift knows that it's not always where you think it should be. So there is that aspect to it. Yesterday, I saw an article popping up on the, on the other spectrum with a penile glands necrosis after a PAE. And that seems far-fetched too. Those are the things that, you know, uh, can happen. Remember when AMS was developing ethanol injection in the prostate? Yeah, it's great. Absolute ethanol induces coagulant necrosis. But I think they stopped all that because some person had his bladder, basically uh, a coagulant necrosis of the bladder. So these rare events can happen. And I'm sure you you know, Aditya and Sandeep, you all agree that one thing we have to remember, this isn't cancer. This is a benign quality of life disease. So it is our obligation to find out for the patient what is sort of the most risk-free intervention and that gets the patient to the desired symptomatic improvement status, taking into consideration that the trade-off of benefit and risk is not like it is for cancer. I have one question that, you know, I think is true for many of these things. So for example, in Eurolift's world, there really isn't that much long-term data of why the prostate wouldn't like roll back. And it's sort of a deficiency in the data set. Is there data to suggest that the vascularity of the prostate does or does not change a year, two years, three years, four years down the road, collateralization, et cetera, or what would prevent that actually? I'm not 
an expert in it. Can you speak to that longer-term data and the eventual fate of the vascular system, if you will? Absolutely, Klaus. Yeah, I think with the patients we've seen in repeat, which is probably about 10% of patients or less who, as you know, over years, they'll progress with just future prostatic glandular growth. These patients will have one of two situations occur. So when we go back and do their angiogram, they will either have their native prostatic artery fully open and be the dominant supply to these new, you know, if you will, adenomas, micro or macroadenomas. And then there's the other situation where they will collateralize from the umbilical artery or superior vesicle artery or sometimes terminal branches of the internal pedendal artery. And so there is, if you will, a will in a way, I would say, for the prostate to, to collateralize. I, of course, prefer when it's just the native prostatic artery to go back through because avoiding non-target related complications and avoiding beads going into the other organs is much easier when you're going back through the native artery than when you're having to traverse through, you know, arteries which share blood supply with other organs. So yes, I mean, we don't have exact data, it's more experiential, but invariably in other patients who we've done, and again, this is in limited subsets and experience we've had, I know the folks at Moffitt have had, where our radiation oncologists send us patients pre-brachytherapy or pre-HTR, you know, uh, IMRT, those patients who, for example, have very high PSS scores that they don't want to radiate or they are too large at the time. It's interesting when they get multi-parametric MRI after the PAE three months later, you know, the gland may be smaller. Many of those macro nodules are gone or diminished in size, but you still see very florid vascularity of the prostate. And I feel that's probably because many of our beads, which are so much, you know, they're 100 to 300 micron in size. They're really perinodular, you know, at the microscopic level, they're around these nodules. Some of them are intranodal, if you will, but that's why we're probably leaving a lot of the, if you will, extra capsular prostatic artery and those first order branches patent, you know, even after our embolization. It's another interesting question I did here for another day. Does the reduction in the blood flow to the prostate, for example, does it A, influence the uh, efficiency of radiation, as just was mentioned, you know? Sometimes the radiation code is like for us to shrink the prostate in some way prior to radiation for good reasons. Does it influence the efficiency or does it create some kind of an inflammatory or immune response even that makes the radiation better or worse? It's another topic for another day, but it's interesting to think that's true, you know, because oftentimes the gland is too large for straight up radiation with the patient being fairly symptomatic. And we're struggling a little bit what the best treatment is for those patients. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. You know, you have necrosis, you have release of neoantigens, ostensibly add-on radiation, maybe some scopal effect, immunotherapy. I mean, it is kind of a fun thing to think about. It is. And I, I think as we learn more and more about these novel procedures, it's really interesting to think about all these potentials. That And that leads me to a question too, Klaus. I had a question for you. And obviously, I've followed your literature and your experience for many years. And you're clearly somebody who's open to not only just great discussion, but, you know, interest in really treating the patient with a minimally invasive sort of less risky way, no matter what it is. And as you know, we've had much limitation with respect to the AUA in terms of guidelines and really accepting PAE despite, you know, whether it's five randomized clinical trials or, you know, 500 publications, multi-consensus documents, even in Europe, NHS supporting it in collaboration with urology consultation. We've had that limitation here in the U.S. And I always ask people, what do you think will be what we need to turn the corner? 
So I guess I'll ask you that question, one. And the second part of that question is, does it really matter? And I say that because if you remember years ago with MRI imaging in patients who had elevated PSA and there was a debate about, you know, the guidelines don't yet say we should do MRI in everybody before a biopsy and do targeted biopsies. There were the groups of urologists who still did, you know, their 12, 18 core biopsies. And then there were the guys who said, I don't care what the guidelines say. I'm going to get an MRI and make my biopsy easier, if you will. But those were the guys ahead of the curve. And in my world where I started prostate centers with a urologist and we're opening them up in different cities, I like being ahead of the curve. And obviously I followed your career and so do you. And so I ask you sort of a two-part question is one, what do you think? And two, does it really matter really in the short and intermediate term? Well, as you know, the guidelines do matter a little bit because insurances oftentimes get on their high horse and say the guidelines don't endorse it. It's not paid for whatever the heck may be, you know. So it matters a little bit for urologists. It matters a little bit because they can or cannot, you know, quote the guidelines as being on their side, on their decision making. When you ask me the question, what would turn the tide here? I think the, um, there's a little bit the composition of the panel. There are some folks on the panel who are very outspoken and perhaps, you know, and less open-minded, if you will, about this. There's also, um, you know, I think that in general, a specialty, just sort of whether you call it turf issue or not, has a harder time with acknowledging outside of the specialty and embracing that into their own guidelines. It is a dilemma and I don't know that I can necessarily fix it. And by the way, that the, for example, the trial, the randomized controlled trial that was done in Europe uh, against placebo or sham, where they actually went to the OR and actually put the catheter in and did all of that and just didn't embolize. I'm sure you know the trial in European neurology, right? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, that trial was even maybe not even really that helpful because if you look at the graphs and the data, I mean, it's almost too perfect, right? I mean, look at the graphs. When I looked at it, I said, what is going on here? I mean, like somebody do all. So, but in general, it's a turf-related issue. It's a personnel issue. And for my participation, the guidelines that came out of that, and then comes, of course, this pullback, like uh, where they said it should be in the form of a trial or in the part of a registry, you know. And actually what came up in the discussion was even the Radonk's position on proton therapy, you know, also a very quirky issue because it is done, uh, you know, with high profit and yet there are no data. So what do the radiation oncologists say? Yep, you should do it as part of a registry. <laughs> so it's this fallback that comes, you know, it takes a couple of things, you know, for me personally, it takes also getting older, you know, so. I don't see the turf issues in my life anymore. Every year there's more men getting into the BPH LUTs age than we can possibly see and treat, you know? And so to me, there's not really a turf issue. This is a very common disease, very common condition. And I embrace every possible treatment under the sun. You know, as you know, in my career, I've been very outspoken about medical therapy. I still plays a very good role. And I dread the idea that some people with weak data trying to say that every alpha blocker causes senile dementia. I just don't think that's correct. But there's so many patients coming to us and the aging of the population sort of suggests that there is room for many treatments being available. And as long as we um, keep the patient's interest at heart and uh, as long as we can conclude our conversation here by saying PAE is a pas de deux. I don't know if that even sounds good right now. You know, LA is a thing where two partners 
work together on the stage, a male and a female partner. And so the pas de deux in PAE is quite simply that a urologist and a radiation uh, and an interventional radiologist evaluate the patient, find the best treatment, treat him and follow up so that the patient has a smooth course. And we look at a beautiful dance on stage between two partners. So PAE requires the ballet parallel to a pas de deux in the classic ballet form. Aditya, I don't want to mean that as that final say in the matter, but I know the hour is already up. This is my plea to every urologist and administrators out there. Don't just go solo and just deny the PAE as a urologist and as an interventional radiologist. Don't deny the important role of the urologist with their expertise and the evaluation, the follow-up and the technical stuff that we do. And so that would be my final comment and my final plea to all who are engaged in that. And patients should know that and they should say, are you working with an experienced radiologist? Yes, I do. Are you working with a urologist who can help me if I have a problem? Yes, I do. You know, that's the patient should also take that responsibility. No, I totally agree, Klaus. And as, as I was kind of thinking about take-home messages for myself and maybe for the listenership, it almost sounds so simple. It's like we should collaborate. We should have the patient's best interests at heart. The person providing the intervention, whether that's a urologist in the case of any type of urologic intervention, or the interventional radiologist should treat it like a serious procedure, technically demanding, not just another case to get through. And it's quite obvious to me, Sonny, that you've spent a lot of time thinking about BPH, lowering your tract symptoms, patient selection, and it's really refreshing. And I think any urologist would say that, hey, if I'm working with somebody that knows about this disease, and yeah, of course it takes experience, this could be a very good option and a, a good outcome. So I, I wholeheartedly agree, you know, maybe not quite as eloquent as the ballet analogy, but let's work together and t- keep the patient interests at heart. Absolutely. I'd love to see that. I'd love to see that French term in the AUA guidelines as a conclusion. It's a great way to finish. Well, hey, uh, this was, this was good. And thanks again for the time. And I'd like to thank the Backtable Urology listenership for tuning into the podcast. Until next time.